0: You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Good morning, Good morning. Good
1: morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, I'm Jessica Matthews, president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, pleasure to welcome everybody for what I think is going to be a, a, a wonderful discussion this morning. Uh, looking back over the the three plus years of the of President Obama's reset, we see. Um, a series of significant improvement in the U.S.-Russian relationship. Um, we, uh, Washington and Moscow have negotiated the new START agreement and opened the critically important northern distribution network into Afghanistan. Cooperation has facilitated Russian entry into the WTO, uh, put in place finally, uh, at long last, the Section 123 nuclear agreement, civil nuclear cooperation agreement, and enabled a rigorous sanctions regime against Iran. But inside Russia, little has changed. Power remains highly centralized and personalized. Elections are controlled, institutions are weak, and corruption is systemic and endemic. The Russian economy remains far too heavily dependent on oil and badly in need of modernization. It's against this backdrop that Vladimir Putin will reclaim the presidency in a few weeks. And in a year packed with leadership transitions in the Arab world, in China, possibly in the United States, the question arises for us this morning, what is the significance of Russia's election last month? What does President Putin's, or Mr. Putin's return to the presidency mean for relationships between Washington and Moscow going forward? What does it mean for the Russian economy and for Russian domestic politics. To address these questions, we've assembled an outstanding group of speakers, headlined by our keynote address uh, from Senator Ben Cardin. Senator Cardin, as many of you know, was first elected to the Congress in 1986 and to the Senate in 2006. He is a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, co-chair of the Helsinki Commission, Uh, A serious student of American foreign policy and one of Washington's most passionate defenders of human rights in Russia and the post-Soviet space. Following his remarks, he will take a few questions before returning to Capitol Hill. And at that point, we will turn the stage over to our distinguished panel, which will be moderated by former ambassador to Moscow, Jim Collins, who will continue the discussion with his panelists, whom he will introduce but for now, I want to thank you all for joining us and ask you to join me in welcoming Senator Cart. Jessica.
0: Jessica, Jessica Matthews, thank you very much uh, for the invitation to be here. It really is my pleasure to join you today. Uh, uh, Jessica is correct. I, I do have to head back to, to Capitol Hill. We are in session. I can tell you I'd much rather stay here than be in the United States Senate right now, but it's... Uh, I thank you very much for uh, for your interest. I really do thank the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, What you do is incredibly important for our nation and for the international community, and we we thank you for your leadership. Ambassador Collins, thank you for uh, what you have done throughout your career, and and, uh, the people that are here truly are leaders. I want you to know that the, the cause for human rights has been a top priority for me, whether the problems are in the United States or in Russia. Uh, Yesterday, I I testified before the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee on legislation that I introduced to end racial profiling here in the United States. The Trayvon Martin tragedy, I think, highlighted a problem that we have here in America on human rights, where racial profiling is still used by law enforcement and it has no place in America. It's un-American, and it has to end. So I have been involved in human rights issues, and I am proud of the US leadership on human rights concerns. In 1975, the United States joined Europe in forming the Commission for Security and Cooperation in Europe, now known as the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. The implementing entity in the United States for our participation uh, in the OSCE is the Helsinki Commission. I now am the Senate chair of the Helsinki Commission. When I was first elected to Congress in 1987, I sought to join the Helsinki Commission uh, because of my interest in human rights. So my interest in human rights goes back a long time. The Helsinki process to me is what this is about. The Helsinki process understands that for us to have international security, for us to be able to have a safe environment, a peaceful environment, it's not just about the military security of a country or the economic security of the country. You also need to bring in the human rights dimension. And the Helsinki process is probably best known for the human rights uh, dimension. It has all three baskets but we recognize that all three are very much uh, tied uh, together. Uh, I'm honored now uh, to chair the the Senate Helsinki Commission. Uh, It has been involved in issues from the Soviet Jewry emigration issue to human trafficking, uh, which is particularly relevant today. It is involved in protecting minority communities throughout Europe. Uh, The United States Helsinki Commission has taken a leadership role and protecting the Roma population uh, in in Europe. In 1987, I remember uh, my first meeting uh, with the Helsinki Commission when Congressman Hoyer was the chair of the commission. And we were meeting with the Soviet delegation. And we were meeting with the Soviet delegation concerning Soviet Jews and other human rights concerns that we had uh, with the Soviet Union. And I'll never forget the member of the Duma that was there Uh, challenging our U.S. delegation uh, by saying, uh, when are you going to get over this fad of human rights issues? And I think the Soviets were very surprised to learn of the staying power that we have on human rights issues. It's not a fad. It's a fundamental belief that we have in this country that it's indispensable for peace. It's indispensable for stability. And it's got to be a higher priority in our discussions uh, as we move forward in our relationships with other countries. We understand that we have different cultures and different values, but we believe there is a common international understanding and standards that must be met on human rights. The US has been a global leader on human rights development, and we have been willing to use international trade as a way to advance uh, human rights uh, uh, priorities. Now, that's controversial, because there are many who say, you know, trade is so important. Why are you messing around with trade uh, when we're talking about uh, something like human rights? And I I remember when I was first in the state legislature, I got involved in a a, a legislation in, in the Maryland legislature that blocked our companies from doing business with the apartheid government of South Africa. And I remember getting nasty notes from business leaders in Maryland saying, why are you penalizing Maryland business leaders? Why are you penalizing the people of South Africa by denying them the opportunity to do business with us? We passed that bill in the Maryland General Assembly, and I was proud about that. The day after the governor signed it, those same business leaders joined me coming to Washington to get the national government to act. And in fact, the United States did lead in the embargoes against South Africa, and we were able at that time to get the international community to work with us. But for the U.S. taking the leadership, there would have been no international pressure against the apartheid government of South Africa through the economic use of trade. As a result, as you know, and I think this was a key factor in the isolation of South Africa that brought down the apartheid government with minimal amount of bloodshed. Well, the same thing was true when the United States Congress passed the Jackson-Vanick provisions uh, in our trade laws. That said, that if you want to have normal trade with the United States, you have to have an immigration policy that allows your people the right to leave their country. It was a real signal to the international community that the United States was going to take and continue to take the leadership on human rights uh, internationally. And it did uh, allow other countries to, to, to join in the United States in saying we need to have basic international understandings of what countries are expected to do on human rights if they intend to be able to join the international community as a full partner. I know we were criticized back then. Again, we had our business leaders who said, look, all you're doing is hurting US companies. You know, Trade is trade. And if you deny us the opportunity to get into other markets, you're, you're costing us jobs here in the United States. I heard that over and over again. All too often, human rights are reduced to merely another set of issues on a long list and seem to lose out whenever there appears to be a conflict with pretty much any other issue. Well. Those of us who push for human rights believe that we are taking a longer view on our national interests and a realistic one as well. We want reliable, stable partners. You can't have security without a commitment to human rights. You can't have peace without a government that is willing to stand up and protect the basic human rights of its citizens. That's our belief, and that's what we're fighting for. Now, there are problems in all parts of the world. Make no mistake about it. United States leadership, if we don't have it, the international community will not respond. The world looks to the United States for leadership. The, I chair the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on International Development Assistance. It's a major tool that we have in our toolbox to help us deal with concerns around the world. It's a key tool for national security. And I could go through, and maybe I'll be invited back another time to talk about how international assistance needs to be expanded in the United States. And most Americans believe that we do 10, 15, 20% of our budget in international aid. As I'm sure most of you know, it's less than 1% of our budget. It is part of our national security budget. Monies invested in international development assistance are very much more likely to lead to peace and less use of military and save the taxpayers of this country money. That's a hard argument at times to make to our constituents. But the point that I want to point out here is I have held oversight hearings with Administrator Shaw to say, look, we want to help other countries. We want to be a partner in developing the economies of other countries so that they can have a stable uh, existence, so their people can enjoy the the, the fruits of, of their own country. But there are certain preconditions that must be met that the United States will participate. And one of those preconditions is that the country must have established institutions that protect its own citizens. It has to have protections against corruption. We don't want to give money that funds corruption in other countries. Uh, not too long ago, we had a hearing in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee where Bill Gates and Bill Clinton testified before our committee. It was one of the, the best hearings that I've ever attended as a member of the United States Senate. Here are two individuals who control a lot of money going into other countries for humanitarian reasons, for humanitarian causes. And I I asked the question about, what do you do if you're in a country where there's tremendous need, where the people really need help, but the government's corrupt, and you don't have the institutions in place in order to try to get the help to the individuals? And their answers were consistent. They said, look, we don't go into those countries unless we can get the aid to the people. We're not going to finance corruption. We're not going to participate in corruption. Well, the United States has to be a leader in the same message. There's a lot of needs around the world, a lot of countries who need partnerships. But there's got to be a basic commitment to transparency and to end corruption. Otherwise, all we're doing is fueling a society that will be of no benefit to the people that live in it. And that's been our message. I'm proud of the work that I did with Senator Lugar in getting passed in the United States Congress a major transparency initiative that requires all mineral companies, oil and gas companies, copper companies, diamond companies, to disclose their contracts, their individual project contracts, that they have in other countries, so that these minerally wealthy countries that have what we call the mineral curse, that the wealth can be traced and can hopefully go to the people of the country rather than financing corruption. Well, Russia has problems in all of these areas, almost all of the above. They certainly have problems in corruption. They have problems in transparency. Uh, They have significant issues on the protection of basic human rights. It's not safe to be a journalist in Russia today and do investigative journalism. It's not safe to be someone who opposes Putin and his government. To be an opposition leader is not a safe thing to do in Russia today. I understand that Russia is a very important international and regional player. I support what the Obama administration is doing on their restart. We need a constructive relationship with the Russian Federation. They're a member of the Permanent Council, the United Nations. We need their help as we seek international peace around the world. They're a nuclear weapon state, a major nuclear weapon state. We need their help. We got their help with New START. I was proud that we were able to get that through both the Duma and the Congress. It was an important step forward in in bringing down the race for nuclear weapons. We need nonproliferation and reduction of nuclear weapons, and Russia can be a major partner for us in trying to accomplish that. Russia is the bridge between Europe and Asia. So, yes, I understand the strategic importance of Russia, but I also understand that if we're going to have the type of relationship with Russia, we have to stand up and point out, the problems that they have today and the expectation of the international community that they'll make progress in eradicating their their gross human rights problems it's got to be done. The international concerns about the about Russia's backtracking on human rights received world attention on the tragic death of Sergei Magnitsky. I think you all know the facts of Sergei Magnitsky. I think you all know that he was a young Russian attorney representing a business interest, trying to do business in Russia. And in the course of his trying to represent his client, he discovered gross corruption in the Russian system. And he did what you would hope someone would do who discovers corruption. He brought it to the attention of public officials to do something about it because he had a love for his country and he wanted to see the changes that would take place so that Russia could advance. And what Sergei got for his efforts was an arrest, torture, and death. It was outrageous. The people who were involved in his death were not prosecuted. Instead, some were promoted and given medals. It was outrageous, the cover-up that took place. And to make matters even worse, in his death, he's now being prosecuted for the crimes that his perpetrators perpetrated against him. These facts have been collaborated by internal reports in Russia, from the Human Rights Council, and the Moscow Prison Oversight Commission. It has caused international outrage, as it should. And our desire is to have Russia hold those responsible accountable so that there is a clear message to the people of Russia and the international community that there will be protection of basic rights in a country that, tells us it's a major power in the world. Well, I introduced legislation to see that done. It's called the Minnitsky Bill, after Sergei Minnitsky. And what it simply does is require that there be a list accumulated of those who have been guilty of these gross human rights violations. This goes beyond the pale of anything that should be acceptable anywhere In the world, those who have perpetrated these types of crime. Yes, we want a list for shame, for people to know that if you do these things, we're going to put a spotlight on it. Because unless you list names, you don't get the type of response that you need. I've seen that over and over again in the work in our Helsinki Commission. If you go just meet with a national leader and say, you've got a problem with, with, uh, with journalists. He says, oh, yeah, you know we have the same type of press problems you have in the United States. But when you list the specific names of people who have been killed, who have been murdered, you list the specific people who are involved in it, you get attention. You get people understanding the faces of these issues and the people that are living in their community that are sp- responsible for what is happening. So you need to list, you've got to put down the names. You, you need to have disclosure. You need to have the ability to look at and see who's involved in in what is happening. So my legislation requires that list. And I want to compliment Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. She's taken action. It's not as far as I want her to go. And our legislation will give the legal structure for this to continue. But Secretary Clinton has said, look, those who were involved in the Manitsky uh, death, those who were involved in the cover-up, will not be permitted to come to the United States. That so We have them on a list today, and they won't be giving visas to, to visit our country because that's a privilege we give, and we shouldn't give privileges to human rights violators. And Secretary Clinton has taken those actions, and I think it's a good start, and the enactment of my legislation will allow the executive branch to have additional tools it's authorization to the executive branch to take action to accumulate this list of human rights violators who were involved in the death of Manitsky and the cover-up and freezing their assets in any of our U.S. banks. There is evidence in the Minitsky case that the illicit profits were laundered through our banking system. And quite frankly, let me tell you something. The people that are involved in this corruption they don't want rubles. They want dollars. They put their money in dollars and euros. They put their gains in properties located in America and Europe. They have family that, that are located in those areas. So that if we deny them access to our banking system, if we deny them access to visit our country, we really hit them where it hurts. It really has a major impact. So that's why the Minitski bill denies them our banking. and denies them the opportunity of being able to come to the United States. I'm proud that this is a bipartisan effort. Senator McCain, who's the ranking Republican on the Armed Services Committee, is a co-sponsor. Senator Wicker, who's the ranking Republican on the Helsinki Commission on the Senate, is a co-sponsor. Senator Lugar. The ranking Republican on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is a supporter. Senator Lieberman, the chair of the Homeland Security Committee, is on this bill. Senator Durbin, the second ranking Democrat in the Senate, is on this bill. Senator Sheehan, the chair of the uh, subcommittee on Europe, uh, is a co-sponsor. And I could list many, many others. This bill has broad support in the United States Senate It is for good reason, because it represents the best values of the United States of America. I think we have an excellent chance to get this bill passed. And here's where I come back to the issue I mentioned earlier, in trade. I think this bill is good standing on itself and should be passed. And I'm hopeful that, that, that we'll get this bill passed as quickly as we can. But we also have another bill that's important, and that's permanent normal trade relations for Russia. As I think all of you are aware, Russia is on verge to becoming a member of the World Trade Organization. That's a good step. I think we all think that's a good step. We want Russia within the World Trade Organization. It is a major power. It should be in there. Well, for the United States to enjoy the benefit, and for Russian and United States businesses to enjoy the benefit, we have to repeal Jackson Vanek as it relates to Russia. Well, I think most of us agree that Jackson Vanek I'll tell you my view, it was an extremely important part of the history of America, but its relevancy today is not there. Uh, we, we've accomplished the objectives of Jackson Vanek. We should acknowledge that. But as we move to give Russia permanent normal trade relations so that the United States and Russia can enjoy the benefits of WTO, it gives us a chance to advance human rights. We tried that with China. I was in the Congress when we, we uh, allowed uh, the United States and China to enjoy the benefits of World Trade Organization by repealing PNTR for, for, for China. I was there. And I remember our discussion about substituting a human rights component, this commission. I won't comment on whether that commission has worked or not worked, but it was an effort to try to substitute a human rights dimension as we eliminated Jackson-Bannett-related to China. We had the same opportunity today with Russia. And here we can substitute something that is truly needed in, this, in the global community, the Minitsky legislation. That we can put something in place that will make a huge difference on America's leadership internationally on human rights by getting the Minitsky legislation uh, uh, attached to the PNTR uh, debate. I tell you, I think we have a good chance of doing this. Uh, I want to tell you another thing. I'm not so sure PNTR can pass without the Miniski bill. So I I think it's going to be looked upon as a way of getting a win-win situation, of getting two important bills enacted in this most divisive uh, of uh, Congress. And and we hope that this will be done uh, this year. I want to make one last comment, if I might. And that is, I look at the Minitski bill as a pro-Russian bill. This is a bill that's important for Russia. Yes, it's important for the international community. Yes, it's important for America. But this bill is important for Russia. It's important because it encourages people in Russia to see their country do the right thing. They want their country to do the right thing. I've been visited by many Russians who told me that they're encouraged. I'm going to just quote one Russian leader who came into my office. Uh, I won't give you his name to protect his own safety. But what he said, and I'm quoting, Senator, I respect your efforts, and I know you do it to Russia because you respect us and know we are capable of more. We are helping the Russians by passing the Manitsky Bill. I've been encouraged by American business leaders who want to do business safely in Russia. They want to see the Minitsky Bill pass because they know it will have a major impact. They know business leaders in Russia don't want to see their visas canceled, and they want to use the International Finance Committee. Uh, abilities. They will demand more from the Russian Federation. Now there are those who say aren't we just meddling into the internal affairs of a sovereign nation. Nothing could be further from the truth. I could point to the OSCE documents where I started which says that every member state of the OSCE is entered into certain commitments on basic human rights. And any other member state can challenge that country on those issues. In fact, we have a responsibility to do that under the Helsinki Accords. Well, Russia and the United States are members of the OSCE. Or I could just point to just the, the basic international concept of human rights, and they're all citizens of the, of the global community that we have an obligation to challenge each other when we don't do what's right under international standards. Other countries are watching what we're doing here today. Other countries are, are watching, particularly in Europe, and they're ready to follow what the US does. They'll take our action and do that in their own country. Our goal is to advance international security. Our goal is to advance international peace. And I'm optimistic that we can accomplish this goal. And that's why we're fighting so hard to get this type of legislation enacted in 2012. And we very much appreciate what you're doing here today in advancing this in your discussions. And I thank you again for giving this senator uh, the opportunity to share my views. Thanks.
1: We have time for a few questions. And uh, when we begin right here, if you'll wait for the mic, please introduce yourself. Please be brief. Thank you, Senator Cardin. I'm Richard Solash from Radio Free Europe. Um, We've
2: been covering this story quite a bit. Um, I wanted to ask you, why do you think uh, there are
3: signs that the administration has perhaps given its backing to the linkage of Jackson-Vanek repeal and the passage of Magnitsky? Why do you think it's taken relatively a long time for that to happen? And if I might, what is your response to uh, Sergei Lavrov's comments saying that this would do a lot of damage to the reset if it's passed? Well, first, uh,
0: the administration will speak for itself as to whether it supports the legislation or not. Uh, Europe has a hard time sometimes understanding the separation of branches uh, in the U.S. system, and Congress will do what it thinks is right, and I am convinced Congress feels very passionately on this issue, and I expect that you're going to see Congress is going to take action. This administration is very much committed to the... WTO accession with Russia. Uh, that's a very important part of the reset between the United States and Russia. And uh, I think the administration is coming to the conclusion that they're not going to be able to get PNTR passed unless the Minitsky legislation is added to it, uh, that that makes it much more likely that we can get uh, PNTR done, which is extremely important to the reset between Russia and the United States. Uh, uh, look, I, I, I follow the comments in the Russian press. Believe me, I do. And uh, there's very few things that we do here that the foreign minister enjoys. Right here.
4: Thank you very much. I'm Vladimir Karamorza with RTVI television. First, on the point you made towards the end of this speech, uh, many opposition leaders in Russia are publicly also supportive of this measure, and they, and they wrote you several open letters for that, so that's, that's absolutely true. Um, and on the, on the larger point of human rights, the bill also contains uh, provisions that would also deny visas and uh, freeze assets of those who are involved in other internationally recognized um, rights violations, like election fraud or violations of freedom of assembly. Um, how important do you think it is not only to achieve justice in this particular case, but to deter future violators, such as the U.S. is doing towards Belarus, for example, with the Belarus Democracy Act. How, how is that preventive part, how important that is in, in your view? Obviously?
0: Well, you know, we, we, we have a multiple uh, opportunities to advance human rights. Uh, let's not try to get everything incorporated into one bill. We think this bill will be the right substitute for Jackson Vanek. We believe Jackson Vanek in its last hours uh, as far as its uh, relevancy in U.S. law. So we expect in the not-too-distant future there will be a historical footnote about Jackson-Vanek, which is and in a very, very positive sense. Don't get me wrong. So we look at uh, the Minitsky legislation as the substitute for Jackson-Vanek, but that doesn't mean we won't have other uh, opportunities to advance human rights. The Belarus Democracy Act is certainly an important uh, act. I was in Minsk uh, not too long ago, and uh, we talked about uh, how... Uh, Belarus could advance. There are certain special concerns within Belarus, and we will continue to, to push those issues. So um, we look at this as dealing with uh, the uh, uh, gross human rights violations, and we do believe that it is global. It's not just one country.
1: This gentleman back here, and then we'll take up here.
5: Thank you. Sergei Chumarev, Senior Counselor, Russian Embassy, Council on Legal Matters. Uh, Would you kindly uh, tell us whether you would extend this famous list to U.S. representatives, U.S. nationals who come to Russia with corrupt purposes and who then use U.S. banking system for money laundering and other purposes? Second connected question. Do you see it as a Really, human rights instrument. This new draft, or really, Russophobic in substance. And what is the underlying ideology of this act? And the third one, how do you see your
1: two? Maybe two. Okay.
5: Personal role.
6: Your second. personal
5: role in U.S.-Russia relationships. How personal. do
6: you see it? Thank you.
0: Right. Well, first, so I strongly support all countries being subject to the same standards on basic human rights. So, absolutely. But I I must tell you, it's not what one country believes the rights are. This is not what we think is the right standards. We think Russia should dispense justice to those who were involved in the Minitsky tragedy. This is beyond any dispute, what happened in Russia. What happened to Mr. Minitsky, has been verified. Everyone knows it. And the Russian Federation is not taking action. That's a fact, and we know the cover-up. It's not what the United States says. It's what the international community says, and yes, if there are Americans that we have not dealt with, and there's international court, we we think that this is a fair standard internationally, but I tell you something. We fully expect that there will be some reactions that are going to try to show that your uh, uh, your macho-ness uh, rather than dealing with the serious issue at hand. Let's deal with human rights. My interest is to advance human rights internationally. And as I said in the beginning, yesterday I was speaking out against a violation in our own country on racial profiling. That is wrong. I spoke out against torture in my own country when that was wrong. And yes, the Helsinki process... We used the Helsinki Commission to bring up issues in our own country. We were very proud of the U.S. leadership on trafficking. And now our trafficking in persons report includes an assessment of what's happening in the United States. And I'm going to tell you something. What happened in Colombia is going to be brought up in the United States Senate as a concern as to encouraging uh, perhaps trafficking. We don't know all the facts of that case. We will bring those issues up. I spend a lot of time on U.S.-Russian relations. I have good friends in the Russia Duma who I meet with regularly. I consider them to be my friends. and We communicate regularly. And yes, I understand the party line here, but I'm going to tell you this. There are a lot of Russians, including those in the government, that know that what's happening in Russia today with Mr. Minitsky was wrong. And we are disappointed that Russia has not had the strength to correct these mistakes.
1: Let's take one more. We promised right here. Thank
2: you. <laughs> Thank you so
3: much, Senator. I'm Victoria Kupchenetsky, Russian Service Voice of America. I have two quick questions. Uh, the Russian side is claiming that those, some of those people on the Magnitsky list um, have not been convicted. So they are saying that this is a violation of the presumption
7: of innocence. So what is your response to that? And my second question is more general one. How do you see the development of the Russian-American relation, uh, relations with, uh, with the new uh, Russian president coming, uh, President Putin?
0: Thank you so much. Well, I, I didn't know it was a new president. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the... Uh, On due process, we are talking about privileges. We're not talking about an issue concerning due process. The ability to determine who can visit one country is not a matter in which there is a high standard of uh, of process. There is a process, and we do think there should be a process. And there is a process under the bill that I have introduced. It's first up to the the, uh, Secretary of State to make certain determinations uh, that – and I, they will have a process for making those determinations. There's also a process for a national security waiver. So there are plenty of procedural safeguards in our legislation. On assets, it's a higher standard. You're absolutely right. When you're dealing with someone's assets, it's a higher standard. We have a process in place uh, within Treasury that has to be followed on all asset freezes that we incorporate by reference into the Minitsky bill. That process, an opportunity to challenge, would remain in place, and there is certainly the possibility that an individual could end up on the list and be denied a visa, but the asset test may not have been met. So we, we understand due process, and once again, on the asset test, there is a, a national security waiver. So there, we believe there are plenty of safeguards in this bill to make sure that a, an adequate process is in place, and we have, a, we have a history here in the United States of following these types of procedures in these types of cases. Let me, um, once again, uh, thank you for uh, convening this group and allowing me to come by. I know this will not be the end of the discussion as it relates to Russia and the United States. Uh, I think it is critically important uh, that we improve uh, the uh, relationships between our two countries from the point of view of strategic partners. I tell you something, a good relationship allows you to be critical when the uh, partner has done things that you think is wrong. If you can't have that open debate, if you're so intimidated because of a partnership that you can't be honest, you don't have a partnership that that will provide for the appropriate international leadership to advance world peace. I want that partnership with Russia. I want the Russian people to be able to uh, have the type of protections that every citizen in the world should have. And I'm going to continue... To do everything I can to advance world peace and understanding—that uh, to me is one of my highest priorities in the United States Senate. I know it's it, Carnegie is one of it's one of your highest priorities, and I, I thank you for giving me the opportunity of sharing just a few moments with you today. On my immediate right is,
5: um, is Angela Stent. Uh, I think someone quite well known to those who follow Russia and. Uh, Russia's neighborhood in uh, in Washington. She is at the Georgetown University. Uh, formerly, uh, also uh, was the National Intelligence Officer for Russia, um, and uh, is a very well recognized scholar on the region here here in, in town. Uh, next to uh, Angela is Dorothy Dwoskin. Uh Dorothy and I go back a long way. She is a veteran uh, from the negotiations of WTO membership with Russia. Uh, worked in the USTR for uh, I don't know how many years, Dorothy, but uh, certainly many years, uh, and is presently uh, government uh, re- in government relations for Microsoft. And finally, uh, but certainly no means least, on on the far right is um, is Lilia Shevtsova. Um, Lilia is uh, our own uh, colleague uh, from Carnegie, from the Moscow Center. Um, is a very, very well-known commentator and scholar and analyst on Russia's domestic political scene and uh, on the uh, developments of her country over the last 20 to 30 years. So, Lily, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. Um, uh, The senator uh, made two or three comments, and I think I'd like my colleagues to uh, spend five minutes or so uh, simply uh, reflecting on uh, some of the points he made, and also whatever they would like to to say about it. But it struck me that he had two or three major points. One was that for the United States, um, peace is linked to the observance of human rights. And put another way, you, you're not going to have durable peace and stable peace unless you have a community of, uh, that is prepared to observe uh, basic human rights for the citizens of the of the nation states uh, in a given region or globally. For that matter, uh, that's a fairly major point, and it's a very I think fundamental part of American policy. It certainly was over my career, <clears throat> and it remains so. And it remains even more complex these days as the globe has become much more um, open to globalized. Uh, trade, globalized travel, uh, the information revolution, which basically has no borders, and so forth. And so, you know, the question of human rights uh, is more immediate in some sense because everybody is linked up with everybody else in a much more human and personal way. That perhaps was the case uh, 20, 30 years ago when uh, we were in the Cold War period and the nation state was not even under question. The second thing I think that was important that he had to say is that there is a link between good uh, economic relations, trade, uh, the ability of economic uh, relations to function well, and human rights. Now, you know, Americans are very uh, fond of talking about rule of law. But I would simply say that fundamentally what, what we're talking about here is that Uh, A good economic relationship, uh, I think the senator was saying, requires a rules-based system, something that allows those people who are moving money or investing or trying to do business or trade to have a predictable environment within which to conduct it. And that if you don't have that, you have a strange relationship. You have one that's got unpredictabilities in it. Money doesn't like unpredictability. And finally, it seems to me, he, he made a third point, which is, is a basic one, uh, and that is that for the United States, human rights, human dignity, um, those things that in some ways are embodied in our Constitution and in our Bill of Rights and so forth, are really very fundamental to, to American uh, thinking, American values, the way Americans think about our society. Now, it's also true that Americans have no illusions that we've got it all perfect, I mean, we, we know and, and God knows over over the history of our country with slavery and with discrimination and any number of things, we have a lot in our past that makes us less than perfect. But we have kept trying. And I think what the senator is really saying here is that the important point here is to keep trying, to try to build this. And in that sense, he was saying, I thought, uh, his intent is that this legislation is an effort to try to provide a tool for those in Russia who want to see those kinds of things that are essential to human dignity, to be a part of the relationship between Russia and the United States, just as nuclear disarmament is, just as uh, a growing economic relationship is. And so I think I think it's those points that we ought to be discussing, and so uh, with that i I am asked each of my colleagues maybe they can give five minutes or so on on this and uh, and then we 'll sort of have a discussion with the audience. so uh, let me begin uh, with Angela, if I may okay
2: <laughs> well, thank you, Jim, and thank you for inviting me here, Jessica too. Um, so, in the one part of the senator's speech, did have to do with the importance of the U.S.-Russian relationship, yeah. um, and I would just um, going forward, you know, remind the audience that right now. Um, there are areas where we are cooperating with Russia that are very important to our own national security. And the main one is the Northern Distribution Network, uh, which enables us to transport um, people, uh, goods, even weapons uh, in and out of Afghanistan. And given our very difficult relationship with Pakistan, this northern distribution network has become more and more important. Now, it's in Russia's interest, obviously, to cooperate with us, because they don't want us to leave Afghanistan before the situation is stable enough. And just to show you, in a sense, the contradictory elements in this relationship that we certainly heard from the senator, I mean, on the one hand, Uh, Putin himself and and Russian officials criticized NATO. But last week, Mr. Putin gave a speech saying, yes, NATO is a Cold War relic, but there are some areas where we can cooperate, and he talked about Afghanistan. And then the same week, um, uh, one of his deputy prime ministers, Dmitry Rogozin, not known as a fan of the United States, vigorously defended the establishment of a transit hub in Ulyanovsk, in Russia, the birthplace of Vladimir Lenin in case anyone had forgotten, where we're going to have, where NATO is going to transport out from Afghanistan um, goods and they will go through Russia and then they will go uh, further west. And there have been demonstrations in Ulyanovsk of citizens against, we don't want NATO in Russia, it's the first time ever, and Mr. Ragozin saying, this is great for us, we're going to get between 1.3 and 3 billion dollars, you know, running this transit hub. So, contradictions here, but also showing that certainly on the Afghanistan issue, we do need uh, to cooperate, and we are cooperating with Russia. The same is true vis-a-vis Iran. Even Syria, it's very complicated, but at least we need to work together. And, And so this is an important relationship. Now, on the other hand, you're quite right, Jim, and the Senate is quite right. Human rights, the advancement of human rights and the rule of law is um, something that we basically believe in and is an important tenet of our own foreign policy. What I would say is that the Jackson-Vanick Amendment, of course, applied to many countries. It applied to all countries that you know restricted immigration. Um, and um, the, the issue with the Magnitsky legislation, I think, is the question of whether... It is wise at this point um, in our relationship with Russia to have a piece of legislation that only applies to Russia. And there is a discussion, as I understand it, on the Hill and certainly between the administration and uh, the Congress about a form of legislation that would be broader, that would apply these criteria to more than one country. Um, And in that sense, it would be a true heir, if you like, to the Jackson-Bannock legislation. Um, I would also say that the State Department and Senator Cardin himself discussed this, does have the ability to deny visas um, to people whom we think shouldn't be here, and it does all the time. And obviously there are Russians uh, that have been denied visas and surely will be in the future if the State Department considers that their actions in Russia um, and their connections are such that we do not want them visiting this country. So we do already have um, uh, you know, the, the wherewithal to do this. And I think you do have to have, and, and the Senator I think touched on this, also a discussion about what works best. If you look back over the past 20 years of US-Russian relations or even in the Soviet period, um, is is public naming of people, is that more productive or is um, more behind the scenes and out of the public eye discussions about specific human rights cases, is that more productive? And I'm sure we can get into a discussion on that, and I would like to hear certainly Lilia's views on that, but I think at least that is a legitimate discussion that one needs to have sort of moving forward. Um, and I would just say, thirdly, I, I take your point about... Um, that it's much better for U.S. business to operate in an environment which is predictable, uh, where investments are protected by the rule of law. I will point out that last night in New York there was a dinner uh, for Mr. Sechin um, uh, to, uh, com- to celebrate if you like this new deal between ExxonMobil and Rosneft uh, for joint exploration of the Arctic where we will be of course um, exploring the Arctic with Rosneft and what Rosneft will be um, investing and, and will be involved in our own energy sector. Now, this is, I think, the uh, Obama administration believes this is, you know, something going forward as an example of what we would like to do. So clearly, we do and we can operate economically without some of these um, guarantees, even though it would be desirable to do so. So I guess my I, I would just end by saying, as we go, I think the title of this is The Next Phase of U.S.-Russian Relations. Um, uh, as, as Mr. Putin comes here for, his, uh, for the G8 summit in May, um, we, we do have important agenda items that we need to advance, um, and we have to, of course, Bear in mind these human rights considerations, but I think we have to find, you know, a productive balance between them.
5: Okay. Um, I think I'd like to ask uh, Lilia to take the next uh, one. Lilia, could you, in particular, address the question of of the effect of this kind of of effort by the Americans, and not just the Americans, but others in the international community, and how does it? How does Russia itself look at its obligations under the the, the Helsinki and other such organ, uh, agreements? Uh, you know, what, what it's partly. What's the reaction here? How effective is this kind of activity or action likely to be, or or what what reaction does it get?
3: Well, Jim, uh, if I may, uh, for starters, I I would like to remind us about the timing Mm -hmm. and the context when we are having this discussion and conversation. You know, uh, in fact, we are having this debate at a moment when Russia has changed and when the old notions, instruments, terms, etc. cannot be adequate and relevant to the discussion of the Russian trajectory and Russian trends for the future. Because, in fact, Russia has returned to the unfinished business that it failed to finish in 1991. It tries again to find a way out of its traditional matrix, out of its personalist power. And, of course, our search for a new destiny, for a new future, will be dramatic. And uh, every behavior of other international actors, and, first of all, of the only elephant, on the international scene I mean the United States of America could be viewed or could play a dramatic role in our domestic developments and uh, I would argue that every step Senator Cardin's legislature or even your policy on Jackson Vanek WTO should be viewed from one point or one criteria does it help to prolong the Russian status quo that is viewed with you know um, with apprehension, and which is rejected by the major part of the Russian educated population. Or it helps a change. And then what kind of change? WTO, Jackson-Venick, cardinal legislation, or Helsinki process helps. And responding to your question, Jim, I would say that the previous Helsinki process, and you remember, it has been absolutely fantastically efficient. Firstly, it was efficient not only in order, well, when it helped Brezhnev, you know, to think about some kind of normative dimension. And it helped uh, uh, the Soviet immigration to get out of the country. But it helped, first of all, the Western countries, and it helped the United States during Qatar and afterwards to overcome the Western malaise. So the West overcame its domestic and structural crisis in the 70s by returning to a normative dimension and by starting the Helsinki process. And so when we, uh, uh, I'm just turning to your question from another side, and when we are starting to look at the Western society now, at America's dysfunctionality, if we can trust Fukuyama, at the European crisis, if we can trust the you know Western, German, British, French uh, gurus, then apparently it's your salvation too to look at the renewal, re-energizing of the Helsinki process in the new form. And maybe it's not only the exit solution for us, and not only you are going to create external incentives for our change, but maybe it's medicine for your own crisis. So this is the rhetorical question responding uh, to, your, uh, to, your, uh, to the problem that uh, you uh, put on the table. But with respect to Magnitsky bill, I will, and to WTO, I'm looking at Dorothy, I, I would say that we have two Western approaches to Russia and to non-democratic countries. Mm-hmm. Mag- Magnitsky legislature and Cardin's initiative, absolutely wonderful initiative it tries to find the approach to force not only Russian elite, but the elite in other non-democratic countries to follow civilized rules of the game. Whereas WTO accession for Russia, it's the way, you know, um, uh, it's anticipation that the Russian elite, just like the Chinese elite previously, will follow the rules of the, of the, of the game based on hope. But hope, as we you know, is always delayed disappointment. With respect to Magnitsky list, I would say, uh, 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 I, I, I then give my time to, to Angela and, and uh, Dorothy, uh, with respect to Magnitsky List, I would emphasize several elements. Firstly, the Magnitsky legislature, the Cardin's legislature. And he's a great guy. We, s- we saw how passionately he's involved in the matter. And we in Russia would love to have as much dissenters as possible, not only in the United States, but first of all in Germany and other Western European countries. We would prefer to have Cardens, but not Schroeders there. So with respect to Magnitsky List, firstly, it's not about Russia as I view it from my Russian perspective, and I I would like my Russian colleagues uh, and uh, Russian citizens here to respond to that if you have time. So it's about America. It's about restoring of the America's role as the normative power in the world after two or even three, maybe two presidencies have undermined this a role of uh, the United States as the country that is sensitive, that cares about the principles it preaches. This is firstly. Secondly, of course, you know, this uh, legislature is an attempt to change the whole old... Uh, a democracy, para- democracy promotion paradigm in the world that is obsolete and outdated. The whole model that has been uh, implemented by the Western countries starting with the 60s, starting with the Helsinki process, which is based on the, in fact, on the uh, attempt to practice democracy within the non-democratic countries, to teach democracy inside of the country. I don't think that, for instance, Russians need any kind of lecturing and preaching on that on that subject. And I'm not sure that Russian society, civil society, needs this $50 million that had been offered by some representatives of the Obama administration. So, uh, thirdly, uh, this, uh, this legislature is about... Uh, it never me- it was never mentioned at least in the United States. And uh, uh, Angela, uh, you are mentioning this Exxon-Mobile swap, absolutely fantastic swap, just recent swap. Reminds me that this legislature can be can serve as a warning, as a warning to the so-called. Uh, uh, I wonder, maybe you'll, you'll help me to find a definition for this class, is a warning for the service class within the Western society that helps the corrupted Russian, Belarusian, Kazakh, Azeri, whatever, Libyan, Syrian elite, to pursue and promote its economic and other interests within the Western society. So I'm talking about bankers, lawyers, consultants, PR agency. It seems to me, according to the list, some of these PR representatives of these PR agencies of the service class are present in this audience. So it will be a warning to them, folks, says Kardin, we care about principles. And maybe they will be less, you know, um, uh, they will be more reluctant to help the corrupted Russian and other elites, uh, find a, a, a safe refuge in the United States, in France, Germany, etc. And finally, I want I want us also to take into account the concerns of the Russian Foreign Affairs Ministry and the Russian Embassy that have been uh, expressed here. I do believe that the question that was raised has relevance, and I, I would be thinking, you know, uh, here. That, uh, um, uh, for instance, the, the Western and American uh, lawmakers could really look for this phenomenon when uh, you know, the U.S. citizens are trying to steal the money from the United States budget and stash it in Sberbank or some other bank. Or we should together look for the U.S. citizens that are killing prisoners in the American uh, prisons and try to find refuge in Russia. Why not? Well, uh, I do believe this is the relevant issue for analysis. And besides, well, uh, this ExxonMobil, again, you know, your footnote to ExxonMobil, we can start with ExxonMobil. Of course, they didn't kill anyone, but they helped to pursue one of the most corrupted deals in the newest history, when the American shareholders, in fact, legitimized the robbery of the Yukos assets in Russia. So let's start with the analysis of the ExxonMobil. So I do believe that this initiative, Cardin's legislature, has such you know, multifaceted, multilayered implications, and in fact could be an instrument even to uh, restore the respect to the United States in Russia, and even fight with anti-American sentiments, because we have at the moment, such a huge consensus among nationalists, left wingers, communists, liberals with respect to Magnitsky legislature. Sorry for my long speech, but well, I will give you <laughs> right, opportunity Lillia. to take my time afterwards.
5: As always, you're candid. <laughs> um, <laughs> Dorothy, um, you, you have experience on two sides of, of, of sort of the relation between trade and human rights and, and other political issues. Um, both at, when you were at USTR, and then then now as as part of a of a company that that works uh, around the world and including in Russia, and I, I wonder if you could simply try to give a perspective about the issue of of how how a company like Microsoft tries to deal with this, because Microsoft needs needs the needs the rule of law. It needs the, the, the protective orders. And at the same time, uh, it is a company that, that uh, is a global company.
7: So thanks very much. I um, should say that when I first met Jim, I didn't need to wear glasses. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I spent a long time uh, working on the um, Russia file uh, at USTR from the beginning of the uh, accession negotiations until 2007 uh, when I left. And I think um, the transformation that we saw in the government um, is something that we're still continuing to see as as a company. And some of the hopes I think actually have borne fruit. I mean, I, I think we're in we're, we're looking at some exciting times on on the Russia front. There's a lot of uh, potential. We've you know the the accession is is. Now, not the first issue on the agenda when the political leadership gets together. There's not uh, um, uh, the, the, the sense that every time uh, business has to talk um, to um, uh, the, the Russian uh, side that the WTO is mentioned as an irritant. And that it's just a, a sense that the relationship is going to get on a stronger footing. I think there is something to... Um, what you say about you know old stereotypes, um, and that you know finishing this and, and moving on in the economic relationship. I'm sorry, we can't yeah, you back. Yeah. Can you start? Sure. To a little, a little sorry. So discussion. finishing the uh, the negotiations and implementing um, the accession package actually will allow uh, the governments to take the relationship to a new level, but also companies to, uh, to a new level. What does it mean? I mean, the, for on the economic side, it's, you know, certainty, predictability, transparency, and on the Russian side, an opportunity to create some uh, long-awaited moves towards really diversifying the economy and really joining um, uh, the global system. I looked... Um, on, uh, I was trying to figure out a, a good way to to look at this over the the longer view, and you know if you look at like what the World Economic Forum um, has said about Russia, you know, Russia has a number of advantages and a number of challenges, and I think they all sort of are relevant here. Big domestic market, very educated population, most educated of of the BRICS. I think it ranks about according to the WEF, it ranks twenty fifth in the world. Um, Brazil is 51st, China is 96th, and India is 108th. And they have abundant natural resources. Okay, Those are all great advantages. What are the challenges that uh, um, are evident? You talked about it. The rule of law and uh, the institutional framework. Clearly, that's something very important for companies um, that are doing business around the world. Um, Having uh, the ability to have... um, a continued, educated, high-quality workforce. The education is an advantage. On the other hand, we're seeing that there's a a bit of a deterioration there, having more competition, uh, getting away from a lot of uh, state intervention, and uh, making uh, the rest of the system work. We've seen, I saw in my own case, and you helped with that, Jim, we looked at how Russia could actually grow and prosper if it had the right kind of infrastructure in the regions uh, and making all of the uh, things work and, and management capabilities. So for us, I mean, as a company, I think that transparency and the rule of law actually are you know, essential ingredients, and they clearly, I think, go hand-in-hand hand with um, uh, taking on uh, good, um, uh, good practices. So you mentioned you know anticipation and hope. So the trends in IP, in intellectual property rights protection, which is obviously very important uh, to Microsoft, have been encouraging. So from 2003, the business software piracy rate was at about 87%. It's trending down 87%. That's even higher than some of our other um, challenging uh, uh, places around the world where yeah, we do business. Yeah, in piracy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's trending downwards. It's, it's uh, trending downwards. Uh, it was um, under 70%, um, and it's the latest uh, figures uh, seem to suggest that it's, it's going to go down even further. So there is, um, I think, a, a respect for the rule of law, and what comes with that um, actually is very helpful and is very important for uh, the very uh, important and emerging middle class uh, in Russia that is demanding more and more rights. So I do think that the, um, the work that's been done um, on the economic side uh, actually helps uh, the uh, the broader relationship, whether it's in the human rights sphere or in the, um, the economic sphere. Microsoft as a company, we've been in... Um, uh, Russia since one thousand nine hundred and ninety two um, and we are doing uh, a number of very exciting things um, in terms of um, joint research we 're participating in Skolkovo all of those things I think are dependent upon um, seeing uh, continued progress uh, and opening and we think that you know encouraging um, that process is is a good way to go. Is it perfect? no I mean Russia now is going to be The host uh, is is the host of um, APEC. They're going to be the host of the G20. They're going to host the World Cup. They're going to host the Olympics. There are a lot of things that where Russia is going to be in the spotlight. And that's going to require a lot of change. And from what we've seen, if we can make the changes um, move in one direction, that that will help strengthen not only the economic relationship, but some of the underlying Uh, issues that, uh, you know, two important economies like Russia and the United States have to deal with. So, um, you know, it would be great um, if uh, um, all this legislation uh, for Jackson uh, Vanek was finished. I thought maybe you'd like me to read part of um, the WTO accession package. This is only a third of it. Um, So I mean, it's complicated and detailed. And what I think, what I want to leave you with is this notion that it has really, really been a long journey. And we've seen a lot of transformation on the economic side. And I think if I had to pick out one thing, it would be the incredible progress that's been made on the transparency side. For people doing business in, in in Russia, you have a situation where you know rules weren't, or legislation or decrees weren't uh, published. Uh, nobody had an opportunity to comment on those rules and regulations. Sometimes they were applied in one place and not another. So, in the context of the um, economic relationship, there's now much more certainty. The proof will be in the enforcement. But I think you know Russia, for its own sake, in terms of its plans for diversification, for being a more important <clears throat> trading partner globally, needs to show that all of these um, important rules are going to be observed. So, you know, we're uh, – well, I'm always optimistic you know that, Jim. Uh, I think it's a really big milestone, and I think uh, uh, we have the opportunity um, to, you know, do more things together. And clearly Microsoft is – um, looking very uh, hopefully um, at the situation. Maybe not hopefully in
5: your terms. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, thank you all. I, I'd like now to uh, sort of uh, give the audience a chance to, if it's comment, please make it brief. If it's question, no more than two at one time. <laughs> so, let me start in the farthest back, the the lady standing up. Microphone yeah, Here he
7: we go. Right.
5: Please. <laughs> How
7: are you, Michelle Kellerman with National Public Dorothy Radio? Um, as you know, a lot of people uh, of- uh, sorry it 's Michelle Kellerman from NPR. Oh, hi, How are oh, you hi, Michelle. Um, as you know, the state department 's not very happy with this Magnitsky bill, and I wonder from your perspective if you think this sort of thing works with russia, the threats the uh, threats of sanctions, um, whether it makes sense to sort of shove this down the state department 's throat at this time. <laughs>
2: Well, I guess, as you may have been able to tell from what I've said, um, I think it's very questionable um, and I think one thing we didn't talk about is that, um, of course, the Russian side has threatened. They already had their own, you know, Magnitsky list. They threatened retaliation. Now you can say, well, and obviously, Lilia, you discussed this too. But, I mean, I think there is a question of, you know, it could, things could happen or um, uh, people could get into trouble, Americans, if they go there, if the Russians so choose. That's maybe not a reason to say that one shouldn't have the legislation. But I think if you look over a period of the last 20 years, or even in the Soviet period, again, it's very questionable whether this kind of legislation works. I mean, Jackson Vanek was very specific, and not to get into a long discussion of it, but you can also make the case that one of the reasons why there was more, somewhat more emigration um, in the Soviet period, although it was hard won, were for reasons other than what Jackson Vanek specifically did. And so I think that there is a tendency to to think, because we pass something and, and this makes us feel good, that it therefore has an impact um, on another country. And I'm not sure that the evidence really proves that it does. And she disagrees, right? Uh, no, you know, we always
3: play with Angela You disagree and disagree. Uh, you know, in the nutshell, Michelle, RESET has been the U.S. rapprochement with the Russian political regime at the expense of the society that views uh, uh, the Reset uh, with great suspicion and believes that Reset is legitimizing Putin's regime. Whereas uh, Magnitsky, carved in legislature, could become rapprochement with the Russian society, with the new Russia at the expense of good relations with the Russian ruling team, not with the whole establishment. Because it's different. It started to fragment. But with the Russian-specific ruling team. So the United States have to choose which partner they will have and they would like to have good relations, the state in agony or the new Russia.
5: Okay. Uh, Yes, in the back, and then we'll come to you next. So. Uh, Thank you. My name is David Nikoradze. I represent Georgian television station, Rostovito in Washington. I would like to bring Georgia in this conversation. Uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said in Brussels today that uh, Moscow is very concerned because because Georgia was promised NATO membership. Also, Russia is concerned because Georgia was able to improve its uh, military capabilities. Uh, I'm wondering if you could give me your reaction on that, please, and your opinion on uh, uh, Russia-Georgia-U.S. relations in general. Thank Thank you. Well, it's a bit off the topic, but Angela, do you want to take a quick snapback? What, what
2: was the last thing you asked
5: about the
2: role of Georgia in U.S.-Russian relations? Uh, uh, yeah,
5: Sergey Lavrov, Russian foreign yeah. minister. No, 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 I, I, I know what he Russia said. Is concerned. Yeah that Georgia was able to improve its military capabilities. Right.
2: Well, this is an issue, I mean, I would say of all the issues in U.S.-Russian relations currently, missile defense is one that we're not going to talk about today, but that's very problematic. Um, And the other one really is Georgia, um, because you're quite right, um, at the Bucharest summit, there's a sentence saying that Georgia will one day join NATO. It's not an issue at the moment. It's not going to be part of the discussion, as I understand it, in the Chicago NATO summit. Um, But obviously, the Russian government doesn't like that, that phrase there. And as you yourself said, there's always this question about, uh, as we know, Georgia has, what, 1,000 troops um, fighting in Afghanistan. It obviously has close um, uh, military cooperation uh, with NATO countries in terms of the preparedness of the, of the troops that are there. So this will continue to be um, an issue. I, I, don't, I think that every so often you hear these statements um, from the Russian Foreign Ministry. We will continue, obviously, our relationship with Georgia. President Saakashvili was here a couple of months ago um, meeting with President Obama. So this will continue to be an issue, but it doesn't seem to be um, as problematic as an, issue, an issue as it was four years ago.
5: Yes,
4: here. Uh, Hi, Matt Kwasaborski with the Fund for American Studies. I have uh, two questions. Uh, one concerns... Uh, NGOs in Russia. Putin has been an outspoken critic of uh, non-Russian NGOs operating within Russia. And once uh, the Putin monarchy takes the crown of presidency again, do you think he's going to follow the Egyptian model of how non-Western NGOs were scrutinized and almost suspended? And do you think he would go so far as to expel Non-Western NGOs outside out of Russia. The second question has to do with security cooperation, uh, as mentioned by Ms. Stent. Uh, Russia has the Sochi Olympics coming up and the World Cup coming up, but also the problem they have in North Caucasus with uh, Islamic militants there in the Chechnyan region and stuff. Is Russia cooperating with uh, members of the UN Security Council on maybe setting up the security for the Olympics, the World Cup, but also cooperating on terror? You know how to battle terrorism. And if so, do members of the Security Council, can they sort of use the Syrian uh, issue as a bargaining chip? Thank you.
3: Shall I
4: start? It's well, I will
3: start with your question on NGO. You know, so far, uh, the Russian political regime has been pretty successful with absolutely fantastic Shakespeare type of foreign policy to be with the West and to be against the West at the same time. So to be with the West, uh, to collaborate, to cooperate on many pragmatic issues, especially energy, security, etc. To be against the West, to use the anti-Western symbols, rhetoric, mobilization within the country to close the Russian society from the West. And it seems to me that after Putin returns, the Tsar returns back from the Kremlin, well, he never left the Kremlin, as you know, it seems to me they will try to balance these two, uh, well, different, uh, different trajectories in the foreign policy. I call it, you know, driving two horses in opposite direction. But, you know, with the process of a delegitimization of the power of the current political regime that continues with the loss of credibility for Putin's ruling group, of course, the, uh, the ruling elite will be trying to address much more this pattern of the besieged fortress, Russia as a besieged fortress. So looking for enemy inside and outside Russia. That means that NGOs, especially foreign NGO and Western-funded NGO, will be under much tougher scrutiny. But they've always been. Whether they will expel the St. Joe, well, difficult to tell because the Kremlin will always be trying to look how to guarantee the safety of the Russian elite that personally is integrated into the Western society. So it will be constantly trying to find a tune, to find a line between these two directions. How it will end, God knows.
2: Well, I mean, you ask a number of questions. Um, on On the Olympics, of course, the Russians are already working with the United States and other countries. I mean, everyone's concerned about maximizing security in Sochi, which is in a very, as we know, dangerous neighborhood. I don't see this as something, it doesn't involve the United Nations Security Council, um, and I certainly don't see this as a kind of form of leverage, you know, because it doesn't work that way. And there's, of course, counter-terrorist cooperation, again, bilaterally between Russia and the United States, between Russia and other countries. Um, There's multinational NATO Russia um, working on counter-terrorism. So these are all Different aspects of cooperation, but they they aren't an integrated whole. And I think um, the, the the Syria issue is you know on one track, and these other counterterrorism and security for the Olympics are on another. Okay.
5: Um, yes. Here. Uh, let me take your question, then I'll take your question, and then we'll uh, we'll have to wrap Thank this you.
0: up.
4: Thank you very much. Uh,
0: Dieter Detke, Georgetown University. Um, Question. uh, How serious do you think the new Putin administration is going to be on modernization? And when I mention modernization, it's not only economic. It's, of course, also political modernization, adjustment of Russian laws to dealing with the West. Uh, How do you see that uh, developing? Okay,
5: And and why don't we take this one, too, and then we'll –
6: Hello? Uh, Yes, uh, Kyle Parker with the Commission on Security and Cooperation in Europe. My question is for Ms. Dvoskin. And uh, on on the subject of intellectual property rights protection, a question we've had that we can't seem to even get understood when we ask it to the Department of State and others uh, doesn't go at the protection of intellectual property rights, Western property rights, very important, we think there's a lot of attention on that, but to a question that Microsoft has direct experience with, and I'm thinking back to the story Cliff Levy broke in the New York Times a year or so ago about how it looked like Russian law enforcement were using Western concern and, and you know to Russia about protecting IPR as a pretext for selective and dubious enforcement. I, I understand this has also been an issue in the PRC, and I guess my question is what what can we do, acknowledging that we will have to work with the structures that exist, but when you have something like the Russian MVD, notoriously corrupt, very problematic, how can we expect them to be a partner in good faith in not using our concern to say, yep, boss, did what you wanted. Here's a bunch of NGOs and other groups that had pirated software, and we've, 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 we've taken care of them. Thanks. Thanks.
5: Dorothy, maybe I'll, I'll ask you if you if you would if you would uh, take the first, and then uh, I'll have the give everybody a chance to to uh, sum up and and perhaps in response to our colleague's question from Georgetown.
7: Sure. I mean, I think the question that you asked about um, how sure are we um, that uh, uh, the economic reforms uh, are are going to continue? I mean, I think that Russia's plan, just on the again on the um, WTO accession package has to go through the Duma um, uh, before the end of July. That has um, a number of, um, it confirms a number of changes that Russia uh, has needed to make in order to comply uh, with WTO rules. So that's a good step. There's been a lot of work done uh, in terms of trying to um, ensure that there'll be uh, appropriate enforcement. Um, So uh, you know, it took a long time for Russia to join. I think the negotiations got incredibly serious when Russia, Russian leaders um, thought that this would actually be helpful to their economic transformation, and I don't think that that changes. Um, with respect to um, the situation um, that we experienced, uh, trying to counter attempts to leverage uh, IP rights to stifle political advocacy, it was an issue. Um, I think uh, we stepped in and um, put together uh, a program that has been effective in Russia, uh, our unilateral licensing program, and it's something that we've done in a number of, of, of other countries. Um, and uh, I think we've worked really hard to ensure that we've gotten out to the NGO community, and I think it's been you know, pretty successful. I think we learned a lot. Um, And we had, you know, pretty excellent cooperation with the NGO community as we we did this. I mean, you know, uh, Microsoft is um, very active, and we're a member of the Global Network Initiative. And I think those kinds of multi-stakeholder processes are a good way to continue to um, improve the situation. Okay. Thank you, Jim. Adita, thank you for your question.
3: That gives me a possibility to be even more candid. Uh, (laughs) Firstly, as you know, you're reading our media and our press, uh, there is a lot of optimism outside of Russia, strangely. It's good to have optimists outside of Russia. Well, uh, that and those optimists are trying to argue that in a new situation after the December protests, and in the situation when the Russian middle class and even part of the political and economic establishment, the former deputy prime minister, former finance minister Kudrin, be so being so uh, now in Washington, be, being so critical of the previous government. Putin's government. So everybody among the optimists believes that apparently Putin will be new Putin. Putin 2.0. And he will... Zero, yes, and zero, zero. And he will apparently will try definitely to modernize Russia economically and politically. My argument when I'm talking to my friends' optimists is the following. Modernization, economic and political, and even economic modernization means, firstly, rule of law, Secondly, competition, thirdly, demonopolization. If Putin really wanted and his team really wanted to be 2.0, and you put in new, a new Putin reincarnation of something, he would have uh, apparently guaranteed free and fair elections. Why should he start it, you know, uh, his new um, presidency with falsifying the elections? In any case, I do believe that the Russian ruling team understands perfectly well that if they open the window a little bit more and introduce any elements of real competition, they will lose power. And they are not ready to, to, to do themselves harakiri. At least, you know, they are looking at the Gorbachev's experience. When Gorbachev's liberalization, in fact, you know, left the elite without state and power and the Kremlin, hardly they will follow this way which means that I have to make very pessimistic and very dramatic conclusion. Apparently, Russia has missed, has passed already the fork when the reform and modernization from the top and within the system by the same elite and political class was still feasible and probable. And so we are rushing like, you know, being on a train. We are rushing to a very dramatic, dramatic situation when only pressure from below, that is, only revolution could make the things change, which, of course, creates a lot of challenges for the outside, for the, for the outside, uh, for the outside world. And we can raise the question whether the political alternative to the current ruling machine and the elite will emerge and could be formed before everything starts to implode. But in any case, I promised Dorothy and my (laughs) friends that in a new reality, we'll find a place for Microsoft and its optimism.
2: (laughs) I don't have too much to add to that. I mean, I would just say you go back to the year 2000, you read uh, Putin's millennial statement that he published then. He understands, he understood then, he understands the need for modernization, and I'm sure on some level he understands what needs to be done. Obviously, Mr. Medvedev said the same thing. I was in Berlin a couple of weeks ago, talked to um, some of your German colleagues, how's the partnership for modernization between Germany and Russia gone? And they all said, well, you know, it didn't achieve as much as we hoped it would, which I think is um, probably an accurate statement. So I don't really have very much to add to what Lilia said. If you are to have true modernization, you have to have rule of law, you have to tackle corruption, you have to have real competition, and you thereby challenge vested interests um, who only stand to lose from this. And you can only modernize if you're prepared to challenge those vested interests and to to have those people, and there'll be some losers in this, so it would be difficult in the beginning, and then of course you can go forward. But without doing that, and of course you do need Western participation, um, you need more uh, foreign direct investment, you need more partnerships in these things. If Mr. Putin and those around him were willing to do that, then of course they could go ahead and modernize. But we still have to wait and see, you know, await concrete signs that they're willing to take those steps.
5: Okay. Well, I want to thank the three of you very much. My, my own sense is um, that what, we, what we've had today is a sense, first of all, a reaffirmation that the issue of human rights and civil liberties and, and a sense of rule of law is going to be a fundamental part of the U.S.-Russia relationship, no matter what. It's been there for a century or more, really more than a century. It's been a central core issue between the Russian Empire and the United States, if you go back and look at the 19th and early 20th century, between the Soviet Union and the United States. And it's been there since uh, 1991. And I think it's not going to go away. So it, it is a fact that this is a part of, of our relations. How we conduct it and how, we, how it plays is always a matter of balance between a variety of interests and including this part. So we have uh, many strategic interests in common that are not going to go away, and they are not going to be simply subordinated only to human rights. It's not realistic. It's never been that way. It never will be. So arms reductions, our our global responsibilities and where Russia fits in is something that is going to continue. And we, uh, finally, as as someone from a former diplomat, I have to say, we will deal with the government that governs the territory of the Russian Federation. That is a reality. We have to do that. And we have done it uh, in good times and in bad times. The second thing I'd say about modernization is that there is a challenge out there in front of, of um, the, the, the presidency in Russia and uh, the new coming generation. Someone observed that if you're developing natural resources, essentially those corporate entities, those financial instrument, institutions and so forth, who deal in that world, who are the world of commodities, basically will deal with anyone they have to in order to get at those resources. Because the resources don't move. They are where they are. We have dealt with both wonderful governments and not wonderful governments. Our businesses work with societies that observe all of our values and who absolutely contradict all of them. But the reality of trade and commodities is the reality of a global system. It's a very different matter when it comes to brain power or to the value-added world that makes economic growth in the modern economic system. There, money decides where it will go, and it decides on the basis of where it can be secure and where it can grow and where it can have opportunity. And there is the challenge, it seems to me, for the Russian Federation going forward. Yes, they have tremendous natural resources, but the question is whether that other resource—their brain power, their capacity of a population that has always been creative and 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 important in innovation and so on—is going to stay with them, or is going to be able to attract the financial and, and technological partnership to make the system change and grow and prosper. That is the challenge in front of this coming generation of people who are going to be dealing with the direction Russia takes. Whether Mr. Putin will make the big changes, I don't know. But he will have to deal with this issue, and his successors will have to deal with this issue. Otherwise, you will find that the brain power that Russia needs will end up in Silicon Valley, or it will be in London, or it will be elsewhere. And Russia will become a commodities exporter permanently. Not something that Mr. Putin, Mr. Medvedev, Russia's elite, for the most part, has said it wants to have. It wants a modernized economy. And the question, really, in front of them is, how are they going to get there? And I guess, simply to to wind it up, I would say a part of that is going to be the issue of how they deal between the government and their own citizens. What kind of society do they construct that makes Russia an attractive place for its citizens and outsiders to want to develop their talents, to develop their potential, and develop their capacities? If they don't have the ability to do that in the future, then I, I might uh, subscribe to Lilia's definition of hope. If they do do it, I think Angela may have the day.
6: And Dorothy will be in the middle no matter what happens. So thank you all very much.